requires trust in God. It requires a person to have a certain degree of selflessness, right? And I'm just, I know myself, I'm not good about these things. To care, you know? And so I know somebody, somebody has that more. In fact, in a certain sense, when you're, it's easier to have that about another person than yourself. Principally, you can't really get yourself out of prison. Um, so asking someone to pray on your behalf, and moreover, the more a person feels an innate submission to God, the more effective their prayers are. There's a story in the Talmud about the leader of the high court, Rabbi Gamliel, his son was ill. He asked his disciple to pray for him because his wife says, what, is your disciple greater than you? He says, no, my disciple, Hanina Mendoza, is like a servant in front of the king and I'm like a minister in front of the king. I'm more qualified, I'm loftier, I'm more, I, I, but there's a, there's a sense in which I have a sense of position. And therefore, I don't have that sense of genuine submission before but God. But that like seems a like the same. Then God's not. There's a couple options. Then either like God's not great enough to to see the one who doesn't care, no, or, or the no, one who doesn't no, care. No, so, so that's the thing. If you are saying I prefer that you pray because yeah. the act of praying you do is a better act of praying because you're more qualified. Not saying this is. It's a subtle but very important difference. Not saying that I do not have the ability to pray of in course. principle. Sure. Okay. To, to, to contrast this, if you have a problem, are you let, uh, time this. If you have a problem, um, do you have any standing to make an appeal? You're American? Do you have any standing like, to directly appeal to the President of the United States to address your issue? To take a structure? So. No, you're not really. Why? Why? Go through the court system. Even the court? Can you just like, petition the high court? No, you have to go through the lower Why? courts. Why? There's a system, right? And the system is then to preserve a sense. Like, your issues need to rise. There's no level of significance before they're significant enough, right, to be taken seriously. And if you want to circumvent the system, you need some kind of, like, connection, right? If you have such a way of thinking about God, that's not good. Um, by the way, monarchies are very good for illustrating this. Mm-hmm. Like, real monarchies. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like an absolute yeah, monarchy. Yeah, like an absolute monarchy. So they actually have this in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. In Saudi Arabia, they have a real monarchy. Now, monarchies have these things because the monarch isn't actually God. So monarchies develop these things called governors. You know what a governor is? It's someone appointed by the monarch. To, to represent the monarch. The monarch to like a certain group of people. Like the British equivalent is like a duke. Like the duke has a duchy and the duchy is part of the kingdom of the king. Yeah, but no, that's actually a little bit different system. I'll, yeah. I'll explain it. No, because that, that, their own title. The governor is, is someone who's appointed by the monarch to represent the monarch. Now, here's the thing about a monarch. The monarch stands equally above all the people. Right? There is no system in, in essence with the idea of the monarch. So monarchs used to have, and when monarchies get big, then they appoint, they give this to the governors, these, they have audience chambers. Mm-hmm. And there's petition day. Yeah. What's petition day? Everyone comes. To Everyone comes with whatever problem you want. And, you can, and literally to this day in Saudi Arabia, if your neighbor stole your goat and you don't think the police are dealing with it properly, you can just... There's one, I think it's one day a week, you get in line and you talk to the governor who represents the king of Saudi Arabia and say, my neighbor stole my goat and he can decide if he wants to look into it or not. And, he can, and, and here's the thing, part of the art of being a successful absolute monarch or being a monarch governor is you have to make sure that you are dealing with a number of small petty issues because that gives the people the sense that the monarch cares about each of them individually. And you can get two things. Done. One, it makes them feel that you care and are effective, but it also gives you in the sense the opposite. That, that as far as the monarch's concerned, you and the big official are the same. That he transcends everybody equally. Oh. Okay? You have to have that kind of sense relative to God. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean you necessarily think you're the most articulate person in the world. And you may ask somebody to actually make your case to the governor because you think... You're more, they're more articulate. Not because in essence you couldn't go to the governor. Not in essence because the governor doesn't take you seriously. if the governor was gone, he would hear what you're thinking. It would just be just well, as that gets, what's that, what's that? So that gets into a separate issue. Why prayer is not just like wish granting. But since we know that prayer is not just wish granting. In fact, our sages can call it avayda. Work, service, worship. So, you know. Then you add the element that the Jewish people are considered as a community. And we know that you can represent the community. That's why you can have one person praying on behalf of the whole community. Like if the whole, the whole village has a problem, right? You don't have all the villagers go to the governor, right? You send one person to represent. Now you could theoretically send anybody, but you're going to send the person who's going to be the most articulate. articulate and right. But you have standing, that's the idea. 
When a person says, I cannot approach the creator of existence, I can only approach this lower being, and then that lower being has to approach the creator of existence for me, you're, you're, you're denigrating God. But if you're saying, I could approach God, right? Of course I could approach God, right? But we know God, God is more receptive to the prayers of the righteous. So I'm asking the righteous to pray. But why? Behalf. That's a separate theological oh, question. I'm not getting into that now, because I'm getting into the question okay, of like, what violates the fundamental principles Got of Judaism. It. Got it, okay. So if I'm getting guidance, information, you know, um, 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 spiritual, spiritual, <laughs> spiritual enlightenment, um, asking someone to pray on my behalf, I'm at no point saying like, oh, I, I cannot approach God directly. I need this other being to approach God and I will worship that being and then through that it will be as if I'm worshiping God. That's, that's the problem of an intermediary. Um, the Ram actually says this quite elaborately that, that that's how idol worship started is that the third generation after Adam, so you had Adam had a son named Shays, Shays had a son named Enosh. Enosh had this idea. He said, well, God put the sun and the moon and the stars in order to govern the world. So God wants us to, to show them respect as his messengers. And from there, people started worshiping them as a means to worship God. And from then, they started worshiping them themselves. And from then, they started worshiping the statues that represent them. And the problem is, no, like, don't, you don't worship things other than God. Now, what is important, though, is you do worship God how he commands you to be worshipped, right? So if God says, build for me a wooden box with two golden statues and put in a special room and bow down towards that room, then you do that. Mm-hmm. Right? But you are not allowed to decide that you are going to like, set that up. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ramban Nachmanides points out that the sin of the golden calf was really that was the issue. They were deciding the way they were going to worship God through the, through the imagery of the calf. Mm-hmm. That was the whole explanation. Um, but we have, like, we have like golden statues. They really do exist in the temple. I mean, not anymore because the temple has been destroyed. So if you're going back now to a tzaddik, the idea that a tzaddik or a righteous person somehow becomes a substitute um, for God or that a righteous person becomes the, 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 the being that you direct your religious worship to as a means to them then kind of transmitting that up to God, that would be actually heretical, right? And that's frankly just not a Hasidic idea anyway, so, mm-hmm. okay? Um, there is an idea, which I mentioned in Kabbalah, is that all the Jews are kind of united as one soul. So in that sense, the idea is that like, there's, the, there's like the head and there's the limbs. And that's much more about the unity of the people with each other that's embodied in the righteous person than the righteous person kind of being um, you know, a, a, an intermediary in that sense to God. But the issue is intermediary becomes this messy word because there's clearly intermediaries. We, you know. Now, there's dispute in Judaism how careful we should be about intermediaries. So, for instance, when we say Kiddush, there's this um, song, Shalom Aleichem. Who are you talking to in Shalom Aleichem? Angels. Angels. The third stanza is Barchuni L'Shalom, bless me for peace. So you're asking the angels to give you a blessing for peace. There are communities who don't say that stanza. Not because they consider it to be actual heresy, but they consider it to be too close. But the standard Jewish practice in most communities is to allow it. Okay, so, so, so there is room to dispute like how cautious we want to be, how, 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 how much of something becomes too adjacent that would become uncomfortable. And a lot of that has to also do with historical context. You know, if something's a practice that is very much associated with genuine idolatry or genuine heresy, there's a lot more reason to be cautious about things that are adjacent to it than things that, that maybe conceptually are the same but involve an entirely different historical context. So, yeah, th- those are some of the, maybe some added points I didn't say on, on. So yeah, if a person were to, God forbid, think that like, you know, um, you know that the only way to, to worship God is to worship a righteous person and then that righteous person will, will transmit that up to God. It's like, yeah, that would be forbidden. But, but getting someone to transmit something up to God for you. Depends what you're transmitting. Like a- if I am worshiping God, there's this idea that I am worshiping God, this idea in Kabbalah, if I'm worshiping God, but I know that my worship for God is deficient and I want someone to refine my worship. So the analogy that's used is that if you mine a gemstone out of the ground, you wouldn't put the gemstone as is in the throne of the king. You would want that stone cut and polished first. 
So having intermediaries that are cutting and polishing, so to speak, your worship of God before, before it comes before God is a totally different idea. It's not even being discussed here. So there is a, that, that is an idea. Uh, there's a lot of it, yeah. That's already our sages say, that the angels raise our prayers up to God. And they refine it through kissing it, whatever that means. I don't know. I'm an angel. I don't know how angels kiss things. I don't know how prayers exist that you can kiss them, but whatever. So... I mean, like, how so, does... So, the, so, so there's nothing. So there's the thing. Is this, when a person would go to a Rebbe, whether a living Rebbe or, or a Rebbe who's passed, it's for the, to get more in touch with their soul, to get guidance, um, to, to, be, to, get the, to have someone prophetically reveal to them the will of God. Okay. Um, stuff like that. There's never a sense that this is, you worship... Um, doesn't exist. So it's a lacking in ourselves that we're trying, we can't hear God, we yeah. might yeah. be able to, we right. can't pray to God as, as well as, right. as they can. Right. Things like that. And there's a lot more to discuss now, but that, that's all where it centers around. And if you recognize that this really has to do with the power of the soul, and the soul is not limited after death, then there's no reason to like limit that idea after death if you can relate to it. I mean, if you can't, then maybe. So. I have another question related to this. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, I've had situations where I felt uncomfortable hearing people um, make certain statements. So we were talking about worship as, like, if I understand correctly, kind of um, recognizing the flow and like this the source yeah. of what we're receiving, and um, yeah, and being like acknowledging that, being thankful for it. Um, so when someone says, for example, like. I finally had this child thanks to the Rebbe's bracha. Yeah. Then who are you like? There's I just an, don't know how to interpret. So the thing you have to do is, you have to recognize that bracha is not something that God really does as a general rule. I mean, He could, but that's not really His thing. His thing is something else. I'll explain to you what I mean. If, if you were to, if someone were to have fertility treatments, yeah. And finally have a child. They say, I finally had this child thanks to the doctor. No, no, there's no source in Judaism that said that that's heretical. Right? It's understood that God is the creator of reality and the doctor's ability to heal is due to God. Right? But we acknowledge when people make good choices that help us. Like it's a mitzvah to show gratitude and to appreciate that. I mean, that, that, that doesn't, that, they're not competing for the slot of God in that. The doctor might think they are, which is why the Talmud says the best doctors deserve to go to hell, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> you don't think that, right? right? Or if someone like, helps you carry your groceries, and you say, I would have never got all this stuff home without you, right? You, you don't really mean like, you know, existentially you have the power to like, you don't really think that, right? So if you understand that there is a, there is a, there are, there are, there's a spiritual layer to reality, which also you can get help with. And that help comes... In, in the form of someone blessing you with a sense of love and a sense of conviction in God's goodness. And that helps move things along in the spiritual realms, the same way someone can like help you physically through medical treatments or carrying your groceries, then if that, that's what that means. It doesn't, you know, they're not creating the reality, which is why, by the way, tzaddikim will sometimes refuse to give you a blessing because you can't help with what doesn't exist. If God has not willed someone to have a child, like in principle, no amount of blessing is ever gonna help. The blessing helps presupposing that God has willed that they should have a child, but there's, in principle, there's things that are blocking it spiritually, and, and the, the tzaddik's love, and the tzaddik's faith, and the tzaddik's trust. Um, and by the way, it's not a tzaddik. Anybody has that power. It's just, you know, some of us are better than others. Um, and it doesn't always work, by the way, right? I can try and help you with your groceries, and I might trip and fall, and then you're, instead of you getting your groceries, it splashes all over the place, right? Now you're worse off. That can also happen. There's a, you know, there's a famous story that a bunch of chas, uh, uh, tzad, someone, I'll tell you two stories. I'll just tell you one because we have to get to the text. Someone came to the fourth Chabad Rebbe and asked for a blessing for children and he refused to give him a blessing. And he went to a Febreng and a Chassidic gathering and the Chassidim there decided that the Chassidim have also the power to bless. It's a tradition, old tradition. In fact, their power to bless is greater than the angels and so when they're in the sense of Jewish people being together and they care, so they gave him a blessing he should have children. And his wife got pregnant. And he goes to the Rebbe and he tells him his wife is pregnant. And the fourth Chabad Rebbe says, what happened? And explained um, 
with what happened. And he says, you, you don't understand. God has only willed that there should be only a certain amount of goodness in your life. If you have a child, your wife is going to die and you're going to become destitute. Because the goodness that you have is just going to transfer it over there. There isn't more goodness for you to have. And then he thought, he says, you know, the love of the, of the, of, of the Chassidim had to you, that should be enough to cause God to change his mind. God should change his mind. And, and so, but that's, you see, that's not, you see the shift between blessing and pray. And then what happened is, Baruch Hashem, his wife survived and uh, he didn't lose his money. And, but he was initially refused to give the blessings. Like, I, I, I could, but I'm just diverting from what you have to what you don't have. I don't know if that's making your life any better. There were people who came to the Rebbe and asked for blessings. A famous, I have to tell a story. There's a famous rabbi in Meishonim whose name is Rabbi Farkash. He's like one of these people who's like the strival in the pace and everything. And he was not Chabad. He started learning Chassidus, traveled to the Rebbe, he had a very ill daughter. Um, and he went into, and he'd gone to a lot of Rebbe's and asked for lots of blessings and things. And, and he went to the Rebbe and he spoke about different things. And one thing is he asked for a blessing for his daughter to be better. And the Rebbe kept changing the conversation. <laughs> And the Rebbe said, you should light Shabbos candles this, but the Rebbe kept changing the conversation. And at certain point, the, the audience was over and like, the secretaries are getting to it. And he, 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 he says, I realized at that point that I'm speaking to someone who has like, a sense of something else because like, he's not just being nice, giving a blessing. He has a sense that there's nothing to bless. There's the... God has not put it in the thing that there's anything for me to help you with. And the Rebbe tried to avoid like, just telling people that, like, mm-hmm. things that made them painful. So. Anyway, she passed away, I think, a few, like, two years after that. Um, but interesting, that story made him become a Chabad. There was refusal to give a blessing. So yeah, blessings is not prayer. Blessings is not they have power over reality. It's you can move things around. It's just instead of moving things around physically, you're moving things around spiritually. But if they don't exist, <laughs> blessings won't help. Just like on your birthday or when you get married? You have yeah, you're, you're, you're more in tune with things. You can have more of an effect on things. But you're not, you know, you're, you're not competing with God for what God does. It's just not. Yeah, you want to ask something. My first rabbi was Rabbi Farkash. That's what rabbi Farkash's son. In yeah. Bellevue? I think he has a son in Bellevue. Yeah, 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 I think he has a son there, yeah. Yeah, so that's that how. So, 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 <laughs> so now you see the. the, the yeah, because the Rebbe didn't give a blessing, his that father that became Chabad, and so his son went and moved over to there, and that's. And now he runs C Team, Chabad C Team yeah. in Melbourne. It's either his well, son or his grandson. I have to look at the generations, but yeah. There's, well, yeah. Like, I was going to say that last name sounds very familiar. Yeah, yes. there's a lot of Chavi, a lot of Farkash, but. The, the, no, the, 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 yeah. the father of the whole family, the grandfather of the whole family, has got a light beard and he lives in Mary Sharm, and if you walk by, you wouldn't say Chabad at all, but he's. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so, so I think once you start to, and a lot of this has to do with, with the way language is used when you're in a culture and you're not in a culture. When you're in a culture, there's certain words you don't use. No, I'll give you, like, like, you would use the word betin, which means to ask. I asked the verb. You never know the word davin, which means to pray. You just never do that, right? Like, uh, um, there's, there's certain expressions which are reserved for God, certain ways of talking are reserved for God. But if you're outside that community, you're outside that culture, you don't pick up on those nuances. And so you have blessings, like, yeah, I don't think I So, yeah. I, I can see how that can happen. Um, but, you know, uh, to, to put this in a slightly different context, I had a student in the men's program many years ago who told me that Orthodox Jews are idolaters because instead of worshiping God, we worship the Talmud. Because everything is we worship the Talmud, yeah. Whatever the Talmud says, the Talmud this, the Talmud that, right? Now, like I can see from a certain point of view, you can see how he would say that. Um, but okay, you get what I'm saying. Okay. Now we can move on to the sixth principle. Okay. The sixth fundamental principle is prophecy. I.e., to know that among mortals there will be individuals with heightened sensory potentials and highly developed characters. When they concentrate their minds, they're able to perceive the pure form of intellect and fuse the mortal intellect with the active potential for intellect from which they will derive sublime influence. These are the prophets and these are their attributes. Clear enough? Yeah? Yeah, everyone knows what I mean? Okay. So before we go into this principle, I stopped. There's a second paragraph. Actually, I'll read the second paragraph first. The explanation of this principle in its entirety would require a, 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 a substantial elaboration. 
Um, this is not the purpose of this text. Its goal is to explain all the details of each fundamental principle, rather mention them in a general manner. Many verses of the Torah speak of prophecy. Prophecy is a major, major thing. Okay. Um, in Judaism, we're going to talk about it. I want to just start off with the following. There are different views in Judaism as to how to conceptualize prophecy. The Rambam here has given a brief summary of his view of prophecy. Not every Jewish theologian, philosopher agrees with the Rambam in, in, in exactly this formulation of prophecy. That being said, because this is the text we're studying, we're going to go with this. Generally speaking, though, most views adopt some kind of thing that is more or less like this, even if they quibble on some of the details that aren't mentioned here, but the kind of the general theme. Okay, so let's go through this text a little bit slower. First thing, is this principle about God or is it about people? It's about God. Read the principle again. Well, it's about God talking through people. Really? When did God, was God mentioned once in the entire principle? No, but isn't that what a problem? Well, maybe there's a reason why the Rambam didn't say that. Let's read the principle. Is the principle about God or about people? It's about people. It's about people. That there are people with certain... Heightened form of intellect. Well, it's heightened sensory potentials and highly developed characters. And then because they have these heightened sensory potentials and highly developed characters, they're able to do something that most people cannot. So this is very important to start with. The basic view in Judaism is that prophecy is a human capacity. It is not a God-given thing. Wow. Okay? In other words, although there is a minority opinion, there are some people that, that do think this, the majority of you seems to follow the Rambam, which is like this. If God has a message he wants to convey, but nobody around who has a highly developed sensory potential or developed character, then what? No, then, then there's no they prophecy. Oh. So if he wants it to happen, then maybe he'll just create someone with a character? He could. I mean, he could do that. He's God, right? Yeah. Okay. But in other words, it's not like you walk down one day and like, I'm just walking along. And boom, you become a prophet because God decided that he has a yeah. message, right? Yeah. As in all the Hollywood movies, right? Just boom, you become a prophet unexpectedly. Yeah, you could become a prophet unexpectedly, sense. but very you, you would have to be a certain kind of person. Yeah. Okay. It's a human potential. That's number one. Number two, because it is a human potential, this is very important. Okay? This is the Rambam's view. There are people who slightly disagree with this, but we're going to go with the Rambam's view um, as a kind of a baseline. Because it's a human potential, it's a potential of all human beings. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, so for this, I want to explain to you what I mean. Um, every human being is capable of speaking. Are there human beings who are not capable of speaking? Yes. Yes, because of one of two things. Either... They're not developed or they're deficient. Right. You used this analogy before, right? Yes. Okay. And we can go on and on. Um, I'll throw this out here because I might as well say it. It'll get me into trouble. But you already know me. I get me into trouble. What is the definition of a woman in halacha, in Judaism? One who's not man. Someone who has the potential to get pregnant. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean every woman can get pregnant? No. No, but those who can't, it's because... They aren't developed, something hasn't developed, or something went wrong. Efficient, right? What's the definition of a man? Someone who can't get pregnant. No. Get someone who can impregnate. That's right. Simple enough, yeah? Okay. So you see, like, there's these, these are innate kind of things, okay? So when the Rambam is saying that they have these highly developed sensory potentials and highly developed characters, are they saying they possess abilities that, in principle, the rest of us do not possess? No. No. So how come the rest of us aren't prophets? Either we're undeveloped or we're deficient. Now, not always can you fix the problem, right? Some people cannot speak because something has gone very, very wrong and there's nothing we can do to fix it, right? So it could be that some of us will never be prophets no matter how hard we try because whatever has gone wrong, whatever's inhibiting that development is so damaged and so broken that there's nothing within our power we can do to change it, right? But some of us maybe aren't prophets because... We haven't put in the effort or aren't the right environment to bring out those abilities to the full potential. Okay? Now, what are the heightened sensory abilities? Okay? So there are two, again, this is just, I won't keep saying this over, this is the Ramazu. There are two cognitive abilities that we have 
One is the power of intellect and the other is the power of imagination. I want to describe to you what these are. So I want everyone, in order to describe them, we're going to do a little exercise together. I want everyone to close their eyes. Okay. Now, I want you all to think of a tree as clearly and in as much detail as you possibly can. Okay, good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you can open your eyes. Okay. I am going to say certain things about the tree that you are thinking of in great detail. And I would like you um, to tell me two things. A, am I correct or incorrect? And B, were you thinking of it or not thinking of it? Okay? The tree that you were thinking of uses chlorophyll in order to um, provide energy for its biological functioning. Is that true or false? True. Were you thinking about it? Yeah. No. Some of you yes and some of you no. Interesting, right? It was true of all of you and some were you thinking and some were not. Yes? Let's continue. The tree that you were thinking about had wide branches casting a lot of shade on the ground underneath it. True or false? True. Anyone false? Yes. False? Okay. Um, and was is anybody not just wasn't thinking about that at all? Yeah, I mean, mine was, I was thinking about it in the dark, so I guess no. You were thinking it was about the lemon tree. It was the lemon tree. Okay, that lemon tree. But that it was lemon dark tree. at that time, so I was thinking about it in the dark. Okay. So no. The size, but the size of the tree would cast a lot yeah, of shade. Yeah, it was. Okay. So you were th- you were thinking about the size. Okay. Um, the tree that you were thinking about um, has sap that um, allows the biological system to function by connecting the nutrients to the different parts of the tree that need those nutrients. Mm-hmm. Where is it? Were you thinking about that? Is, do you think of a tree that doesn't have sap? I mean, I don't think it yeah, has do sap. all trees have Which sap? tree? I don't, I don't... I don't know why I thought of this one tree, like, at a park by my house, but, like, I think it's a eucalyptus There's tree. the xylem and the phloem. That's the two... That's and the I don't think eucalyptus trees have sap. Do they? I don't know. I think they do, but we can always look. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you, the tree that you were thinking of had pointy needles. Okay, what's the difference between some of these things and other things? Some are essential for a tree, and some are options. Some have to do with my understanding of what a tree is. And others have to do with optional bodily characteristics. Remember we use the term body? Bodily characteristics of the tree, which vary from tree to tree. Uh-huh. When you are thinking of the bodily characteristics, what you're probably doing is recreating them. So you're creating an image of what the tree looks like, Maybe if you're really good at creating a sense, creating a sense of what it smells like, right? You're recreating the the kind of physical sensory experience, yeah. So when when we're talking about imagination, we're talking about that ability to recreate images, sounds, s- tastes, smells, textures in your mind without them actually experiencing them right now. Mm-hmm. And that relates to the bodily quality of things. The intellect, on the hand, relates to the non-bodily quality. Like what, what are essential? What, what, how do we understand what a tree is and what a tree isn't? Okay? Do you remember in, um, in school that at a certain point the math got complicated that most people said are having a hard time doing it intuitively? I always have a hard time. Yeah? Do you remember that was about the time in which like, it doesn't, the math didn't reflect like, the stuff that you see? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that's the point for which most, for most people, the intellect is being decoupled from the imagination, it's actually hard to do things purely intellectually. That's why we like charts, examples, graphs. Right? Good? Okay. What if you have a person who has an extremely developed sense of intellect? In other words, to deal with abstractions. Yeah. Is very, they're, they're really good at that. They'll see it in reality and they'll create their own and, no, sorry, so here's the thing. Now, what if they have a very vivid power of imagination so that they're very good at creating that kind of imagery and scaffolding to help navigate those things? Yeah, they'll create it for anything. Okay, so such a person could become a prophet. Yeah. What if your powers of intellect are not that developed? Then you're not a prophet. What if your powers of imagination are not that developed? Yeah. You yeah. don't get there. Because, right, so the way to think about it is the imagination helps to 
helps the intellect. It's like a scaffolding to build a building. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, by the way, just as as a side, how does the evil inclination work? By decoupling the imagination from the intellect and get, um, having it run on its own. Decoupling the imagination from, from the intellect. And then and you then start living in relation with things that you imagine that have no basis. Imagine and not and they're not, and not based in reality. Okay. Like, think about how many times you're upset because things didn't happen when there's really no good reason why they should have happened. And if you had just been focused on what is happening and what should happen rather than what you wanted to happen that you can vividly imagine, you would be much happier in life and probably make fewer stupid decisions. Hmm. Okay. So a prophet is someone who has three characteristics, heightened intellect, heightened imagination, and what is the way in which those two things relate? The imagination is subservient to the intellect. So that they're only imagining things as a way of helping clarify the intellect, never as a way to corrupt their understanding of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, then you have character. What is the character of a person? Let's start with a baseline. Um, should you kill people? No. Wrong answer. Unless should you kill people? Kill you. Correct. Should you be nice to people? Depends. Good. Um, should you be generous? Depends. That's right. You seeing a theme here? Depends. What if, what, if, what if your sense of should and shouldn't is so um, strong that you can't really adapt and change based on what's right or wrong? Like you just can't bring yourself to kill when killing is right. You're deficient. Right. Your character is deficient. Your character is seriously deficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be able to shoot right, no, your character, your character, no, this is if important. If it's like a stranger, you have no reason to not yeah. shoot them. The ca- your character is deficient. In other words, in other words, you're being governed by predisposition and instinct rather than allowing your intellect to govern you. Okay? Now, if you always prioritize yourself over other people, your character is clearly going to be deficient. Why? Are you intrinsically more important than other people in any objective sense? Yeah. So is there any reason to be predisposed to your well-being over others? So you see, so what, by character, a very basic level I mean is that the natural human tendencies and predispositions don't control you. You actually use them as is appropriate, governed by what's right and wrong. Okay, so now if you have a person that has that, but you know, to an extreme, you have those two things together. You have the person who has the capacity to become a prophet. a prophet. Now, how do they actually become a prophet, though? We keep reading. When they concentrate their minds, they're able to receive the pure form of intellect and fuse the mortal intellect with the active potential for intellect from which they will derive sublime influence. What does that mean? So I'm going to make this very, very simple. Which comes first, conceptually? My knowledge that it is wrong to murder or that it is wrong to murder? Your knowledge. So first I have know that it's wrong to murder and then it becomes wrong? Or it's first ro- it is wrong and then, I, and then I learn about it and then I discover it and then I know about it? In Judaism, it would be that it is wrong because it comes from the Torah. Well, no, actually. Judaism would be that it is wrong because it's actually wrong. Or yeah, yeah. And then how do I know it's wrong? There's a separate discussion, right? In other words, that God doesn't cre- just create what is, he also creates what should and shouldn't be. He creates the, 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 the morals, he creates the ethics, he creates the logic of things. Okay. So, if something is true, it's not true because you know it. It's the reverse, right? Mm-hmm. So, there's kind of, there's a repository of the truth of reality. God creates the world and the world has a certain truth to how it works, what's right, what's wrong, what will be, what won't be how certain causes will lead to certain effects. Now, we don't usually have access to that. What do we do? We, we experience the world around us, then we think about things, we figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. But what if you could just like plug your mind directly into that? Mm-hmm. Then you would just know stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what he's describing. Mm-hmm. That when these people concentrate their minds on, on ultimate truth, and in a, in a very open-minded state, they, 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 it, they know things not through learning them, not through thinking about them, 
but the, 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 the truth as it is, so to speak, known, so to speak, by God, but not really by God. It's actually by angels, but whatever. That truth, they kind of hook up their mind to it. If you want a modern example, think of the way that when you go use your phone to go to a website, you can just download stuff. You don't have to program it on the phone itself. Mm -hmm. right? It's already there. You're just having access to it. That's mm -hmm. what happens. When the such a person... When such a per exactly, when such a person, they are able to sync up their consciousness with that. Now, when that happens, by the way, crazy stuff happens to the consciousness. And what ends up happening is that their own imagination is going to create imagery to help them hold on to that. So when you read the prophet's prophetic vision, the prophetic vision is not the product of God. It's the product of their own consciousness, their own mind, their imagine, right? Their tr this truth enters their mind. Which part of their mind receives the truth? The intellect. But as we just talked about how in order for our intellect to function, it needs this help from the imagination. The so the, right, the scaffolding. So the prophet's imagination builds this kind of imaginary symbolism to help represent that to them. Yeah. But they know what it means. Yeah. Okay. Which, by the way, one of the ways we can tell that a prophet is false, if two prophets come and prophesize in the exact same style with the exact same imagery, yeah. at least one of them is false. Because yeah. no people's two imagination comes with the exact same symbolism and imagery. Okay, so how can I tell if someone is a prophet? Well, do they have the character and the sensitivities that make it possible to be a prophet? If they don't seem to dis display those things, then I can pretty sure they're not a prophet. So could a sinner be a prophet? They don't What's have it? highly developed characters. They don't have highly developed characters. Their imagination has become decoupled from the intellect and is corrupting the intellect. Clearly, a sinner cannot be a prophet. So if someone comes across me as a sinner, like, and then they come, God said, spoke to them, I don't even have to hear the message. I know that they're not a prophet. Any more that like, if somebody is like, incapable of doing basic math and they tell me that they won the Nobel Prize in physics, like, that doesn't work, Unless right? Unless they're a prophet. And then they downloaded the no, information. They could, because they would have to develop their intellect they enough. Yeah. Um, good? Mm -hmm. Okay. As a side note, one of the mitzvahs in the Torah is to obey a prophet under all circumstances, assuming they check out as a prophet, which means we need a way of verifying prophecy. So the basic rule is once someone has a plausible claim as a prophet, we test them to see if they can make a prediction. And if they do that a few times, or if another prophet has verified that they're a prophet, then we're required to take them at the word that they're a prophet at that point. If they say, God has commanded me to tell you X, then you have to do X. So prophecy is more about predicting the future than no, no, understanding? No, no, prophecy, in order to verify the prophet, oh. we use that as the final test. But it has so to they be, should know what's the future. Right, right. So if someone comes who has all the character, and they come and they say, I'm a prophet, they say, okay, what give us I, a prediction. for lunch then? And if they can predict it precisely and they do that a few times, then they've, they've, dinner, then? Yeah. Then they've, then they've kind of get a certification that they're a prophet. Prophet. <laughs> Good? Okay. An important point of this is the role of the prophet is only to do two things. To communicate God's truth mm -hmm. in as much as it pertains to things that the Torah does not discuss or to encourage us to be more devoted to the Torah. Hmm. Prophecy is not admissible as part of ascertaining God's will as it's expressed in the Torah. So if someone says, I know that this is the halakha, this is how we should keep Shabbos, because God told me in a prophetic vision, false prophet. But if someone comes and says, they check out all the things, they say, God has told me you should keep Shabbos because like, it's really important to keep Shabbos. And if you do, things will be good. But if you don't, it'll be really bad. That's not a false prophet. Or if a prophet comes and says, you should marry this person or you shouldn't marry this person, that's fine. Because does the Torah give you a specific command of who you should marry? No. No. So the, the prophet is, prophet's truth has to pertain to either things the Torah does not address or encouragement to keeping the Torah. So if you add details, like you should like red shabbos candles. False prophet, false prophet. Because it's, it's details of how to do a mitzvah. And if they say that the, like something that's going to, you're going to marry this person, that's a prophecy though. So that's not, you should, that's different. Yeah, yeah. Although it's an interesting discussion whether that's the kind of thing God decrees. Yeah. Um, 
Now, what's interesting is that even if the prophet tells you to violate a commandment, as long as they're telling you to do it on an ad hoc basis, you have to listen to them, unless it's idolatry. What? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet came to people and said, offer a sacrifice to, the, to Baal, who was an idol, and offer a sacrifice to God, and do it on Mount Carmel. Now, he, the, the, you're not allowed to offer sacrifices outside the temple once the temple was built. And Mount Carmel is not the temple. So how are they allowed to do that? That's clarifying. That's not clarifying. He's saying, I know it's forbidden, and God says, today ignore that mitzvah in this specific instance. He's not, in other words, he's not, he's, he's telling you to set the Torah aside on a temporary basis. That's something prophet can instruct us to do. But not to tell us what the Torah actually means. In other words, it's very important to understand is that while Torah is something to do with God, prophecy really has to do with the ultimate potential of human beings. So it's not the same thing. Okay. Um, you know what's going to happen when Mashiach comes? We're all going to be prophets. That's one of the Messianic prophecies, is that prophecy will be normal. That this potential that human beings will have will be fully actualized by, you know, everybody. Which is pretty cool. But prophecy being normal doesn't mean that everyone would, cons- would constantly be prophets. It just means that they would That's open to interpretation. That's open to interpretation. You know, just because most people, almost everybody speaks doesn't mean everyone speaks all the time or is equally articulately, right? Yes. Yeah. But now one thing is true that in certain eras prophecy reaches higher levels and is more common. So in the, in the first temple era prophecy was extremely common relative to after the first temple. Mm-hmm. Such that the Talmud says that prophecy has ended even though it didn't actually end but it just became less frequent and on a lower level. So that's prophecy. Can there be prophets nowadays? Sure, because if it's a human, if it's human potential, and you're saying that there can't be, then you're denying that human potential, and then you're denying something fundamental about the Torah. Apparently, what's fun, is fundamental Torah is that people have the capacity to know things, not just through observing them with their senses, not just through figuring them out by reasoning, but actually tapping into some kind of supernal truth. That is a fundamental thing to know about human capacity, even though very few of us actually ever achieve it. Okay. While we're on the topic of Hasidic Rebbes, you, you must be a prophet to qualify as a genuine Hasidic Rebbe. Oh. Yes. It is a minor, it is a, you don't have to be a, a high level prophet, but you have to have a basic minimal level of prophecy to qualify. Okay. Why? Think about why would that be the case? Because what is the Hasidic Rebbe supposed to be providing? Insight about what? Insight about the soul, insight about your mission in life, insight about the unique way that you can connect to God beyond just the basic structures in the Torah. Like, how is he supposed to know that? There's no way to know that kind of stuff without some kind of prophetic knowledge. And by the way, the reverse is also true. If you go and ask your rabbi, should I marry somebody? What qualifies the rabbi to answer that question? Well, if it's permitted in Jewish law, they can answer that. It's permitted or forbidden. If they have life experience, they can tell you it doesn't seem like a good idea. But they can't actually tell you like in any kind of certainty that, you know, assuming it's permitted and assuming that like, you know, experience doesn't seem anything wrong with it. There's no, there's no, they can't tell you for sure. Yes, it's a good idea. No, it's a bad idea. To know that kind of stuff would require prophecy, prophecy, right? Is it good for my soul to be a rabbi or to be a business person? Nobody can know that. Unless they have some kind of prophetic. You see what I'm saying? Like, like the, the role that the Chassidic Rebbe is playing in the world presupposes a certain basic level of prophecy. Yeah, I was always wondering, like, isn't he a prophet? And people would be like, no, no, no. no, no, no. Yes. Is that, yeah, so you yeah. start debating and quibbling levels of prophecy. They'll use terms like, right, right. Like, it's not like, that makes a the lot prophets of prophets we read. Like, right. So there's, there's, there's different levels of prophecy. Some levels are more subliminal, more, some are more conscious. I'm not going to go into all these differences. Uh, I'll just tell you one cool story. Um, Ariel Sharon, you know who Ariel Sharon was? He was the defense. He was a was the defense minister of Israel, then became the prime minister of Israel. When he was defense minister, he went to New York. Like many Israeli um, politicians, he went to meet the Rebbe, and the Rebbe asked him when he was flying. He said that night, and the Rebbe said, "I'm making a Fabrengen for my birthday. You should stay for the Fabrengen." Mm-hmm. And he said, "Okay, that's nice. You know, nice the Rebbe to invite me." 
And then people told him, like, if the Rebbe says you should stay, you should really stay. And they convinced him not to get on the flight and to stay. And that flight ended up being hijacked. And so, of course, all the Lubavitchers went around saying the Rebbe knew the plane was going to be hijacked. And that's why I told him to stay. Because, you know, Lubavitchers have to say that the Rebbe knows everything. It's a thing you have to do. It's a requirement. You hope you hear the sarcasm, right? <laughs> so, at, at one point, the, ah, I forgot who he was. The head of, like, one of these, like, Orthodox... Um, groups in America, I don't know, the head of the OU or NCSY, something like that, something like these big kind of general orthodox umbrella organizations who used to have regular audiences with the Rebbe just to talk about like, communal affairs. So after like an hour or whatever talking about other stuff, he's interviewed, I think there's a video interview of him. He says, I asked the Rebbe, I said, people are saying that you knew the plane was going to be hijacked. And so he told Ariel Sharon to stay. So if you knew, why didn't you tell anybody the plane was going to be hijacked? <laughs> there are other people got on the plane. Yeah, I always wondered that. And services, I didn't know the plane was going to be hijacked. But when he said that he was leaving, I knew that he should stay. Wow. Like, so he, like, didn't know why. Yeah. So he just gets this sense, like, he has, like, right, a very the, in right. tune sense. Right. And if you think about it in our intellect, it also works that way. Like, if, like you, if, you, if you speak to anybody who is a professional in mm-hmm. some kind of discipline, they usually can figure out things are right or wrong far faster then they can fully articulate themselves yes. why. That, yeah. So sometimes the prophecy doesn't become full, a full-fledged conscious experience of that mingling, but it is happening on some level, and that guides them. And the Rambam in the Guide for the Plex talks about the different levels of this. So when I say prophecy, I don't mean he has to be like, you know, the prophet Samuel, so saith the Lord kind of prophecy. Yeah. But this, this, you know, syncing up the mind of the prophet to that higher level mind so that the, not, the things are just known without having to be learned, that has to be there because again, there's no, no, there's no way a human being could figure that kind of stuff out. Okay. Um, the seventh fundamental principle. Yes, yes. This is a, I have the feeling this is the Rambam's favorite principle. I think it's longer than all the other principles combined. It's not long, long combined, but it's pretty long. This, this, um, and the eighth are like really long. Okay. The seventh fundamental principle is the supremacy of the prophecy of Moshe, our teacher. Okay. What does that mean? There's no one, no human better property than... Better property. I like your word. Better property. There is no, there is no one who, human being who achieved a higher level of prophecy than Moshe. So that's the, that's, the, that's the ultimate. You can't go higher than Moshe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we're going to go with this in detail. I want to first mention something. There is some dispute about this principle because there are teachings that seem to imply both in Kabbalah and in earlier rabbinic texts that in some sense Mashiach is superior to Moshe. Um, and so there's a question how to reconcile that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you... Um, three possible approaches. Possible approaches that the Ram simply disagrees with those things. The problem is that, that would, it's hard for the Ram to like take a stake that this is fundamentally against Judaism when there's like clear things in the rabbinic tradition before the Rambam that say otherwise. That's a bit difficult. Because yeah. again, he's talking about fundamental principles, not taking a side on a yeah, so then specific all issue. Like, right. Well. It's not... You could justify it, but that's... That, that. Another thing is to say that we're talking about Mashiach being superior to Moshe in some area respect other than prophecy. And that works for the rabbinic sources, but it doesn't really work for the Kabbalistic sources. And the other problem with that is that Moshe is generally held up as his, his greatness is his prophecy. So it's kind of weird to compare Mashiach to Moshe if you're not comparing them in the thing. Like, like you wouldn't say Mashiach is a better chess player than Moshe because like, you don't think of Moshe in chess playing terms, right? You, would, you compare people as to what they're known for. The third possibility is to say that prophecy is actually multidimensional. There are different aspects of prophecy. And in one respect, Moshe is the ultimate prophet. And in another aspect of prophecy, Mashiach can surpass him. The difficulty of that is you would then have to differentiate different aspects of prophecy. Anyway, this is a discussion. There's different approaches to this. I just wanted to point that out because sometimes people hear stuff in. Okay, fine. So this includes the belief that he is the master of all prophets, those who preceded him and those who followed him. What does that mean? There was no one like him 
Yeah. But the master thing. Yeah, but what like is the master? How could he be the master of those who came before him? He had the strongest Wi Fi connection. No. 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 So, what this means is why should we believe a prophet? It's a serious question. Why should we believe a prophet? Well, we test them. Yeah, but why is that? So, so this, I always find this funny. Um, someone will come and ask me a question like, um, about, I don't know, can I trust this person? Can I trust this rabbi? Mm-hmm. You know? And my question always is, like, why are you asking me? <laughs> like, why, am I, why is my trustworthiness being taken for granted that now I get to pass judgment on other people? You see what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. like, okay, so now, the, it's true that in Jewish law, in halacha, there are criteria that you have to meet in order to be considered a prophet such that the people are obligated to listen to you. That's true. But why should I trust those as the criteria? In fact, by the way, there's a prohibition not to doubt the prophet once they met that criteria, implying many people, quite possibly, will continue to doubt the prophet's authenticity even after meeting the criteria, right? So why should I trust the criteria? Where did the criteria Yeah, where did the criteria come from? What? Moshe's prophecy, yeah. Okay, um, how do we know that Avram was a prophet? I wasn't around. Did, does Moshe in the Torah indicate that, he's a pro- that Avram was a prophet? No. Um, he has prophetic encounters with God in the Torah. I mean, someone, yes, he meets the criteria of a prophet. Yeah, but how do we know that? We know that because Moshe is a prophet. Right. Oh, you're seeing the issue? The, the legitimacy of all prophets subsequent to and even prior to Moshe really rests on Moshe. Moshe. So if you don't trust Moshe. God, we were reading this in the Hummus today. Like, God showed himself to all those people, or like told, gave the first two commandments to all the people, and therefore they're not going to be like. So, they, even if Moshe says he's a prophet, he is a prophet, he does all the things. Someone else could come in and be like, no, I know better, but they saw God. They were there. And one of the, and one of the things that was established at that exper- experience was the legitimacy of Moshe. 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 And God. therefore, he's the one who, his, his, what he, his prophecy set the standards for everything. Yeah. So in, other, in other words, like the this, this, this is... The of Moshe is what we base the status of all the prophets on. Right. In fact, it goes even further. The Rambam in, in other texts, which maybe we're learning, is that Moshe himself, when God sends Moshe to Egypt, Moshe's like, this is not going to work because like, what am I doing? So God sent me and I have the right character to do some miracles and show them some signs. And they're going to say like, okay, plausible. But how do we know for sure that you're a prophet? And what was God's response? That's a good point. We just need to get them to the mountain. It's just a temporary measure. And when they get to the mountain, what happens? They experience a revelation of God which confers legitimacy upon Moshe. And at that point, when Moshe says, this is prophetic, this is not prophetic, this is what it means to be a prophet, at that point, that's the standard. And then retroactively, that gives credibility to Moshe's previous prophecies. And that retroactively gives credibility to all of the forefathers and foremothers and their prophecies because they're getting the legitimacy from Moshe. So what makes any prophet legitimate is the degree to which they concord with whatever criteria Moshe says up, whatever way they can be vouched for Moshe. And this is very important because what that means now for this point going forward, if someone comes along and says, well, I had a prophecy and they meet all the criteria of a prophet and then their message is to disregard the teachings of Moshe, then what would we say? False prophet, right? You can't use the system to undermine the, the, the system, right? It's the system that gives you credibility, right? Okay, so that's what he says, included this. It's actually somewhat of a separate point. It's not, this is not so much the level of his prophecy, but the role he has in, in making prophecy legitimate. Okay. They're all beneath his level. In other words, he was chosen of all mankind who perceived more, than, uh, more about God than any person who existed or who will exist. He attained the highest level of greatness above all humanity. He comprehended the levels of the angels and indeed attained their level. So Moshe's knowledge was the highest level of knowledge that one could possess without actually being God. Okay. In the Rambam system, the angels are ranked hierarchically. Okay. Um, if you want to think about this just very, very simply, um, if you're going to count 
How many count whole numbers? How many numbers are there between one and five? Four, three? Three. <laughs> okay, there's only space for three numbers, right? Yeah, two, three, four, right? That's the only thing you, you can't, there's no room for anything else, right? So the, 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 the Rambam's understanding is that there's the truth as it is known by God, and then there's a bunch of possible layers down below that. And then, you re, and then there's the layer of like where human beings operate, where we learn stuff. So if Moshe achieved the level, the level of the highest angels, right? Then that means that he achieved the maximum degree of knowledge that is possible without actually being God. That's the pinnacle of human achievement. Yeah. Um, like, so there's certain, if I'm correct, there's certain like attributes of Moshe's like character or personality that are foregrounded in the Torah. Yeah, which and, ones? Like, kind of like the, the stuttering and like the kind of whiny type of situation. Um, and I'm wondering, is that? Like, do we take Moshe as an example for what it means to have highly developed characters? Like that yes. Yes. Okay. So the stuttering thing is, 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 no. I mean, the stuttering is just like a physical impediment. There's a whole medrash about it. Um, I always find Moshe's character very interesting here on the topic. Um, you can read Moshe's character in two ways. You can read Moshe's character and actually, like, try and put yourself in his character. Or you can just, like, look at individual stories. If you actually go through it in his character, you know what you see about Moshe? Um, and our, our sages confirm this. Moshe was by and large a difficult person to deal with. What? I, I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like it. But, like, I don't know. <laughs> well, pick, pick some story with Moshe. No, no, no I'm just... Pick any story. Anything. Any story. He's like talking back to God. He talks back to God, right? God says, I'm going to wipe out the people, right? And Moshe's like, okay, that's fine, but um, leave me out of it. Like, Moshe's very, very rigid. Um, Moshe is uncompromising. Um, Moshe is, has the expectation that he alone should be telling the people what to do, right? The whole idea there's a system of subordinates, that was his father-in-law's idea. Moshe's like, I don't know what you mean. The people should come to me and I'll tell them what to do, right? Moshe had the sense, and the Kabbalah Moshe is associated with the attribute of truth. Moshe the sense is he has the truth, and the truth is uncompromising, and the truth is what it is, and that's the end of it. You ever, you ever encounter people with that kind of a trait? Okay. They're not easy to get along with, right? When Moshe died, did all the people mourn him? The sages say no. When Aaron, his brother, died, everyone mourned him, because Aaron was that, you know, you know, that, you know that version of, of, of the Rebbe that... Uh, that everybody likes to portray about how the Rebbe is so warm and inviting and mm-hmm. accepting and loving and seeing the good in everybody. That was like Aaron's character. <laughs> when he died, everyone was distraught and everyone mourned. When, when Moshe died, it was only the, the scholars and the sages. And everybody was like, Phew, okay. It's like, it's intense. I mean, to, to put this, after the golden calf, what happens? Moshe like loses his mind. He doesn't lose his mind. Well, he's like, he like breaks the tablets. He's like, ah! He says he did that out of anger. Did he do that out of spite? He didn't want to give... So it depends, it depends on which commentary you read, but it's, not, it's understood to be done intentionally. And the Hasidus adds this beautiful meaning that he didn't want, the, based on the Medrash, that he didn't want the Jewish people to, um, to have the Torah because then that would, they would be in violation of the Torah as it was defense of the Jewish people. Um, there's other explanations that, that he was doing it because they don't deserve the Torah. But like after that, he gets to the mountain, right? And so he comes down. Just like great, straightforward the verses. What happens? He comes down from the mountain. His disciple Yeshua is there waiting for him, and Yeshua says, "I hear these sounds in the camp. Maybe there's a war." And Moshe's like, "Not a war. There's no sounds of victory, no sounds of defeat. It sounds like a celebration." He marches to the camp, and he sees this pagan, you know, festival going on, and Moshe, um, he he makes an announcement, Mila Shem Eli, whoever's with God, with me. And then all of the tribe of Levi joined him because they were the only ones who abstained from the whole thing. And they're all lined up. And Moshe tells them, all right, strap your swords and go from tent to tent. Kill your, kill your relatives. And if they, if they did it, right? Just wipe out everyone who committed it. Anyone who there's witnesses, they participated, they're going to die. 
Then he takes the golden calf and crushes it up and makes the people drink it. And anyone who worshipped it in secret dies. Right? That's Moshe's response. Like, like, no, no business, no nonsense. He was like that about everything. Just like, you know, back in Egypt, right? He sees the Egyptian beating the Jew. He kills the Egyptian. It's wrong. You deserve to die. That's it. Like, you're just like, like, so you have to think about, like, now, it makes a kind of sense if you think that Moshe is having these kinds of experiences, right? By the way, this is one of the explanations that's given sometimes the idea that he had a hard time communicating. It's not necessarily that he had a hard time speaking, but he had a hard time being, being understood. Oh, so people just maybe didn't like him or didn't understand him. And Aaron was the one who, Aaron was the one who translated him. Aaron was like, like, what Moshe means is like this. So there's this like dual thing. And the way the Zohar puts it is that Moshe represented God and brought God down to the world and Aaron elevated the people to make them able to be receptive. And there was, uh, yeah, there's a, they're both important. But yeah, so if you really like go through and like think about, it's a person who like is not flexible about anything. Whatever he considers to be right. Like when Hashem doesn't redeem the Jewish people in time, as far as his expectation, he's like, God, why are you doing evil? Like, like, no, no qualms about this. It's a very, yeah, anyway. So that's Moshe's uh, character. Okay, so he achieved the highest level. He was at the level of the angels. Okay, he goes on for a while. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the things that he mentions tomorrow, not all of them, because if we did that, we'd be here for a very long time. We have to cover all 13 principles. Okay. Um, but what the, I do want to just end on this. What the Ram is essentially saying is that Moshe was the perfection of, human, of what it means to be a human being. That if what it is to be a human being is to know God, and, and to really know God is to experience some kind of prophecy. Therefore, to be the ultimate prophet is to be the ultimate human being. Okay. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because I'm going to say something disturbing to end the class on. Okay. There is a, two ways of looking at things. They're both valid in Judaism, but they're both valid. One way is that we think of Moshe as like a shepherd. Why do you have a shepherd? To take care of the sheep, right? So what is of primary concern? The shepherd or the sheep? The shepherd is a primary concern. Why do you hire a shepherd? To take care of sheep. If you don't have any sheep, what do you do with the shepherd? The sheep. You find the shepherd. I don't need a shepherd. I need, right? The sheep is what I care about, and the shepherd is a means to take care of the sheep, right? So this is, I think, the way that most of us think about it, and most of us are comfortable with it, right? Is that the prophet, right? And certainly Moshe is the ultimate prophet, is special because he is uniquely qualified, or in the case of Devorah or other the prophets, she is uniquely qualified to shepherd the Jewish people, right? But we could think about it the other way. If... Moshe, if a prophet is like achieving ultimate human potential and Moshe is like the ultimate human being, then if we think about like what does God want out of humanity, what does he want out of humanity? And therefore we can think about it in the reverse, which is that the people are really there. To make him a prophet. Yeah. To listen. The people are there to create a society that can produce and sustain people like Moshe. In which case, God is really focused entirely on the Moshe or Moshe-like people. And legitimous, legitimate, that's not a word. Make him legitimate, too. Like, because right. otherwise he wouldn't be an official prophet? No, because it's hard to be a prophet if you go foraging for food in order not to starve to death. So you need people yeah, to, yeah. to plant. And people are social beings, so they can't be lonely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to produce a society where the next generation also produce some prophets. So we're all just working for... And if you think about that, God really is not interested in the people. He's really interested in... And the people are just kind of the means. Kind of like when you grow... When you, so when you grow uh, grapes, you have um, the grapes and you have the leaves. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the thing that you really care about? Grapes. But no leaves... You also no care about grapes. the leaves. Why? You can sell them. Like, <laughs> they have, without the leaves, it's not going to grow, right? So another way of thinking about it is that, that people like Moshe are the grapes and the rest of us are like 
And both of these are legitimate things. And the more you think about what he's saying, this is, the, uh, this is maximizing human potential. Right? There's these two elements. Is, are are, are, are the, the, these people who achieve these higher things, are they God's gift to us? Or are we God's gift to them? <laughs> so, is the Torah about you know, the people and each and every one individual? Is the Torah about the, the, the Avrams and Saras and Moshes? And... I wonder why God cares about either. So, like, which, which That's a separate question, why God would care about anything. Yeah. Right? That, 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 that I'm leaving out. That's a separate discussion. I think presupposing God cares and we're understanding the Torah, which way, is the, is, which, which way to think about it? And um, it's important just to be aware that both of those tr- streams of thought are true in Judaism. And, and presenting this principle and the next principle, you kind of see this idea there's a human achievement mm-hmm. that should be valued. And that does create a kind of hierarchy for which we are not at the top. Unless you're a prophet, in which case. You know, speak to me after class. I have a good psychiatrist for you. I have a quick question. Yeah. It's not related though. Why would God say in the second commandment, don't worship other gods? Like, is he just saying to us because like we thought there were other gods? Like, yeah. he's not. Yeah. I didn't ask this before, right? He's not like... There's no other gods, yeah. So why would he say? Just like, could we thought at that time? Like, he's just saying like, quote, unquote, yeah. other lowercase g gods. Yeah. Okay, so it's not a big question. Okay. So he's just talking to us in our language at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew it wasn't, like, a bigger reason, but I thought it was, like, some explanation, but nothing, like, actually. Obviously. Okay. Cool. I mean, the... The the one thing to be aware of is that in biblical Hebrew, the word for gods is the same word for authority, judge, and powerful person. Oh, so it's not, like... And, and the reason is cause, cause, because, because that's ultimately what, you, what a deity is. A deity is someone who has authority and power and determines, but on a level of reality. Okay. Right. So the word Elohim can just be referred to like powerful people You're or judges. that word itself. That word itself, because it, it has shades of meaning. But we couldn't say that for anything else. That would be... Yeah. What? Could we use that word? We uh, don't anymore because it has taken on a theological meaning. Okay. But in... In the Chumash, the word Elohim is used to refer to people. Also. Okay. But in, so because it, it, it's referring to beings of authority and power that can make judgments. So do you mean that on a societal level? Okay. Or do you mean that on an existential level? So basically, in, in a way to relate, it literally does have a lowercase g. Like if you were to do it in English, it would literally be like there's God and then there's this like lowercase g gods thing. Yeah. And, and there aren't actually any other gods. Yeah, but you but might take the idea. Case. You might take the idea of a god and apply it to yeah. other things like we learned. Yeah. yeah. Super.